Oh, I gotta turn my mic on. There we go. Okay. All right. So let's get uh, started. Um, if you want to open up in your Bibles to Matthew chapter six, Matthew chapter six is where we will sort of mainly be this morning. Um, we pray because it is how we put into practice our righteousness. We pray because. It is how we put into practice our righteousness. As we conclude our series that we've been going through for the last um, 12 weeks on healthy church, we close on prayer, hence why I have the book up here with me, prayer. Um, This book on prayer is fantastic. It was actually, um, I think, our second or third book of the month that we did about a year ago. Um, So this has been around in the life of the church, but I would encourage you, there's still um, a couple copies over there, would encourage you to pick this up if you don't have a copy and to read it because it is worth your time. Um, and so the series of books, reason why we did this, the series of books have helped us to look at essential aspects of who we are as a church, what we believe and how we practice our faith. The last couple of weeks, we ended the topics of expositional preaching and church elders by clearly noting the significance of prayer for both of those. And so maybe you're thinking, why wasn't prayer, if prayer is so important, if you know, we're spending time to pray during the service, if we're spending time talking about prayer for an entire sermon, why wasn't prayer what we started with? Um, well, you know, maybe we should have started our series on prayer. I mean, it's how we start our meals, right? I mean, I went to um, lunch with a fellow pastor this week, and we got uh, soup before our main course. And so he brought out egg drop soup, and the guy, you know, being a nice formal pastor and all, refused to touch his spoon until we prayed. You know, I'm not as uh, strict on praying before the soup. You know, usually I'll pray before we eat something solid as part of the meal. Um, But, you know, but I appreciate the emphasis that, you know, he placed and that many of us place as Christians on praying, you know, before you eat. I think it requires meat to pray before, but anyways, I'm just weird like that. Um, and so prayer, prayer is how we start things. Prayer is how we start our meals. Prayer is how we start NASCAR races, right? I mean, we're outside Bristol. Prayer is said before the football game begins. But I wanted to end our series that we've been going through on Healthy Church. I wanted to end it on prayer because I think that it is proper for us to have this as a focus for what we get into next. I I think it's a proper way to end it because it will be the last taste that we have of what is important to us as a church and how we are to function all the time. I want it to be on the forefront of our mind. Um, I want it to be on the forefront of our mind as we have our member meeting today because the one thing that we should constantly be doing as members, the one thing that we've covenanted together as members of a church together is to pray for one another. As I mentioned a minute ago, we ended the last two sermons by noting the, the significant place of prayer when it comes to preaching and to church leadership. And so let me remind us of what I basically said and repeated over the last two weeks at the end of those sermons. We must be a people who pray because we cannot change anyone's heart. We must be a people who pray because we cannot change anyone's heart. 
We must be leaders who pray because we cannot change anyone's heart. We must be preachers who pray because our sermons can't change anyone's heart. If we exist as a church in order to connect people to Christ, right? I mean, our vision's over there. If we exist as a church in order to connect people to Christ, to build each other up in community, and to send each other out on mission, we must never forget that only the Spirit of God, using the Word of God, can produce any lasting and meaningful life in anybody. Only the Spirit of God, using the Word of God, can produce any lasting and meaningful life and change in somebody. The Word of God by itself has no power outside of the work of the Spirit of God. So we pray because we recognize that it is God who gives the growth. It's God who brings the change. It's God who grants a new heart. It's God that brings us to godly sorrow and true repentance. He has put us here as ministers together of the gospel in order to plant the seed of the word and water that seed, but only God can bring the growth of that seed. Only he can bring life from death. So we pray. Now, instead of just looking at the Lord's Prayer and and Matthew's Gospel as we have it here in Matthew chapter 6, I want to look at where Matthew and where Jesus placed this prayer in context. This this isn't going to be a how-to on prayer or a 40-minute walkthrough of the Lord's Prayer. Some other time we can do that. And if that's what you want right now, that's what he does in this book, is he walks through the Lord's Prayer. So pick up a copy and read it. If you, if you need that today, if you need that this afternoon, you have it there available to you. But that's not what we're going to do today. That's basically what he does in the book. I mean, seriously, you should pick up a copy and read it. <laughs> now, what I'm actually going to do is I'm going to provide us with a little bit of background so that we can rightly understand the context here in Matthew 6 in order to make sure that we are all on the same page as to why we pray. Now, we're seeking to accomplish three things this morning. We're going to define righteousness. We're going to see how prayer relates to righteousness. And we will look forward to our rewards for practicing our righteousness. We are going to define righteousness. We are going to see how prayer relates to righteousness. And we're going to look forward to our rewards for practicing our righteousness. So let me begin by restating the first thing that I said when I got up here for the sermon this morning. We pray because it is how we put into practice our righteousness. We pray because it is how we put into practice our righteousness. Let that statement be our guide this morning. So let's read Matthew chapter 6. We're going to read verses 1 through 18. Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret 
will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. For they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. So let's first of all go back and notice how Matthew begins verse 1. Jesus is talking about practicing our righteousness. Beware, there in verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness. He then gives us at least three ways that we practice our righteousness. We find those in verse verses 2, verse 5, and verse 16. Note the way in which Matthew begins those three verses. Look at verse 2. Thus, when you give to the needy. So he begins this chapter, Matthew, by saying, beware of practicing your righteousness. So what are the three ways that he gives us that we practice our righteousness? The first one there is when you give to the needy. Thus, when you give to the needy. Then look at verse 5. And when you pray, and then verse 16, and when you fast, you see how those three things relate. Jesus is on the same topic, that topic of practicing our righteousness. We practice our righteousness through giving to the needy, through prayer, and through fasting. But before we go any further, I think we need to define righteousness. We can't put into practice something that we don't have. So let's define righteousness in order to understand further whether or not the practice of giving to the needy, of praying, and of fasting are even expected or assumed of us. To do that, to define righteousness, let's turn over to Romans chapter 3 and get a quick glimpse of how Paul defines righteousness for us. Romans chapter 3. And we're going to get a a glimpse of how Paul helps articulate what righteousness is and who possesses it. Because, I mean, we can give to the needy, we we can pray and we can fast, but if we don't have righteousness, if we are not righteous, those things are meaningless to God. Look with me at Romans chapter 3, and we're going to start in verse 10. We're going to read through verse 18. And the first thing we're going to see is who is not righteous. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. 
In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. What an exciting passage, right? It said most nobody. No one's righteous. Nobody is righteous. Naturally, as humans, in a fallen and corrupt world, none of us are righteous. Nobody seeks for God. We lie and we curse and we kill and we do not fear God. By birth and action, we are sinners. In our natural state, in this world, as it currently stands, we possess no righteousness on our own. We are all helpless and hopeless in this world when it comes to living up to the standard of God. Now, don't you struggle with that concept of being hopeless and helpless? I know I do. When it comes down to it, there are certain things that I seem to be pretty good at, pretty square on. Like, I can do certain things. I can accomplish certain things. Physically, I'm not hopeless or helpless. I can hold down a job. I can save money. I can provide for my family. I can stay in shape, though currently that's not going so well. I can go to school, and I can get a degree. I can do a lot of things. There, there are a thousand things that I can do. But what happens is that we transfer our ability to care for ourselves physically over into our ability to spiritually care for ourselves. Not only that, but we presume that God's grace has nothing to do with our ability to physically function. We assume that because I seem to be able to control myself and the things that I'm able to do and accomplish, that we roll that over into our spiritual selves, our spiritual lives. And, and all the while, we forget that even in the first place, the only reason I'm able to do anything at all is because God has given me the grace to be able to do it in the first place. I'm able to physically do these things because God gives me breath. And this is a problem that almost everyone has, this, this problem of transferring over what it seems like we're able to do in and of ourselves into our spiritual lives or in spiritual matters, whether you're a Christian or not. We often naturally view ourselves as self-sufficient, as self-supporting, but what must be recognized in fact is our complete inability to come before God with any level of righteousness on our own. Nobody is righteous in and of themselves. That's what Paul has just clearly quoted and stated himself here in Romans chapter 3. Nobody is righteous in and of themselves. So then the question becomes, how can we ascertain this righteousness? How can we, how can we become those who are righteous? Where does righteousness come from? If we now have a clear picture of who is not righteous, which is everybody naturally, then, then where does righteousness come from? Who can be righteous? How can we become a people who are acceptable before God? How can we become a people who know the way of peace and who have a right fear of God? And that's what Paul talks about in verse 21 and in verse 22. Verse 21, there in Romans 3, he says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Faith in Jesus Christ is how anyone 
becomes righteous. And notice how the beginning of verse 21 and verse 22 says, but now the righteousness of God, verse 22, the righteousness of God. There is no one righteous but God himself. So we go from nobody that has been created is righteous, but God is righteous. That's why it's the righteousness of God. It's God's righteousness. He is the one who is righteous. And we are counted as righteous only when we put our faith in the fact that Jesus Christ alone is the only one who is righteous because he's not only man, but he is also God. This is why theology is so important. If you don't believe that Jesus was God, then there is no way that he was actually righteous. And if he wasn't righteous, then he is unable to save us from our sins by paying its penalty. But we do believe that Jesus is God, the second person of the Trinity. We believe that he died as our substitute to pay the penalty for our sins. He lived a perfect life, a life of righteousness a life of obedience to God the Father, a life of dependence on God, a life of love toward God and toward His neighbors. He never sinned. He never failed. Jesus is righteousness embodied because He is God in the flesh. Jesus is our righteousness. This is righteousness. Not that Christ looked out for His own interests, but He looked after the interest of others. He humbled Himself to the point of dying an undeserved death on a bloody cross, so that we, so that he might take our place, so that he might pay for our sin, the just penalty that our sins deserved, in order that he also might put onto our account then his righteous, perfect life. He took all of the red that was on our account and he turned it into black. We did nothing to deserve this righteousness, but we believe that he did this for us because God has shown the light of the gospel into our hearts. Through the work of His Spirit, He has opened up our eyes to see and our ears to hear that we are not righteous in and of ourselves, but that our righteousness comes only through Christ and only because of the righteous life of Christ. This righteousness, then, is only for those who believe. There are those who remain deceived in this world, those who remain convinced that they are as well off as they need to be. Sin has deceived us. Satan has deceived us. So we pray that God would open the eyes and ears of our non-Christian friends and family and co-workers to see that they are unrighteous without Christ. They can know that there's a God and they can give the Operation Christmas Child and they can buy gifts for kids on the angel tree and they can donate a dollar to St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital and they can serve meals to people on Thanksgiving and Christmas and they can volunteer at the local food pantry, but they are not experiencing true life and joy in this life and they do not have eternal life waiting for them in the life to come. Rather, they await eternal punishment in hell because they do not believe that they need Christ and only Christ as their righteousness before God. They are righteous in their own eyes when they deny their need for Christ's righteousness in order to be rightly reconciled to God. But before we think that we're off the hook as Christians in this line of thinking, we've got to recognize, we must recognize that we are still fighting this battle ourselves as Christians. 
We may be on the winning side of the war by God's grace through faith in Christ, but we still battle with sin. We still battle with temptation and leaning toward our own will instead of God's will. That's what, why Jesus prays in such a way. We need to pray because naturally we don't want God's will in our life. Naturally, as fallen sinful humans, we don't want to see God's will done. We want to see our will be done. Naturally, we don't want to forgive people. We want them to pay for their misdeeds. We want them to suffer. We want them to experience all the loss that we've experienced and more. We don't naturally act according to the way that Jesus prays, the way that Jesus models prayer. We tend to default back to our old habits of living, to our proclivity to depend on others and ourselves for what we need in this world now and in the life to come. We are prone to wonder and to think that we provide ourselves our daily bread. And this is what leads us back to Matthew chapter 6 and the Lord's Prayer and really the whole of chapter 6. Not even just what we read in the Lord's Prayer or what even just we read in verses 1 through 18 that we started with this morning. When we as disciples of Jesus Christ live according to the pattern set out by our Lord and Savior, we put into practice our righteousness by giving to the needy, by praying, and by fasting. Practicing these things doesn't grant us righteousness. They're simply manifestations. They're, they're outworkings of the righteousness that we have been credited to on our account by God through faith in Christ. We pray because it is how we commune with God. We pray because it is how we put, our, put into practice our righteousness. We pray because proper prayer reorients our hearts and our minds to remember who God is, what He has done for us in Christ, and how that informs and shapes our interactions with His created world and with our neighbors around us. We pray because it is our call for help to the only one who can truly help us because He is faithful and just. So if we rightly understand that Jesus is the embodiment of righteousness, the perfect picture of righteousness, the definition of righteousness, then we pray because we understand that we cannot be righteous apart from Him and we pray because we need the Spirit of God to empower us to follow His example and to be holy like He is holy. We can look at Matthew chapter 6, and you can see how even after what we read in verse, through verse 18, laying up treasures in heaven, just look at the headings, laying up treasures in heaven, do not be anxious. How, how can we... No, how can we be sure that, we, that we've done this? When, when Christ is our righteousness, when Christ is our everything, we recognize that we don't have to store up treasures for ourselves here and now because we know that there are greater rewards waiting for us in heaven. And so we don't worry about how much money I can make now or how much I can save or how much I'm going to be able to buy tomorrow or how much I'm going to be able to do this or that. He says, don't be anxious. Don't worry about what you're going to eat or drink. Don't worry about tomorrow. 
Today has enough troubles for itself. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. Know that God is caring for you today. God cared for people in the past. He cares for the birds of the air. He cares for all of these things, and He will care for you. And so we pray because we recognize that we are not as self-sufficient as we once thought. We are not as self-dependent as we once thought we could be. We pray because we realize when we have given our lives over to Christ by trusting that He alone is our righteousness before God, that we cannot bring any righteousness to God except for the person and work of Jesus Christ Himself on our behalf through believing that He did that for us. It changes our whole perspective. It changes our entire countenance. It changes how we view this world, the things of this world. It changes when, when we get tensed up and, we, and we're not sure what's going to happen in our lives. And the last thing I want to emphasize this morning is that there is a reward waiting for us when we pray. There, there is a reward waiting for us when we put into practice our righteousness. Look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 4. Talking about giving to the needy, he says there in verse 4, So that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Look at verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Look at verse 18. That your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So when I give to the needy in secret, is God going to reward me by giving me double back? Do I need to sow my seed of $58? I, I literally saw that yesterday. I was having coffee with another pastor yesterday morning, and there was a TV. It was at the New Food City. Nice place. Um, on the TV in front of us, over the fireplace in the cool little cafe area, there was this guy saying, sow your seed of $58. I have no idea what he was saying you're going to get back. But clearly, that's the idea that he's trying to promote. He's saying, yeah, give me some money. Now, that guy's not needy, so don't give that guy money. If you see someone on TV asking for $58, it's probably not legit. And I have no idea where the $58 came from. Anyways, <laughs> well, we don't give because we expect to receive something back now in this life. But we recognize that there are greater things to come. And so we give because we recognize in the first place that what we have been given is not ours. Though we might have earned it as a paycheck, we recognize that God has given us the strength and the skill and the ability to earn it, that, that we've been given the opportunity to live in a nation where we can have the freedom to work and to make money and to provide for our families, and that this is a gift from God. It's a gift of His grace toward us. And so when you, when you see what you've been given in that way, it changes how you view your money. And, and, and you're more inclined to be willing to give it away because you recognize that it wasn't yours in the first place, that you're just a steward of it. And so, and so we, don't, we don't give because we're going to expect something back here and now. We don't give in order to be seen by others so that we can receive our reward here and now. And that's what he's talking about in, in each of these three areas. 
if we do this, these things publicly to be seen by others so that it makes us look good, then we've got our reward here and now. We've looked good in front of other people. But when we act in that way, we deny that we needed Christ in the first place to be who we could not be, that Christ is better than us, that Christ is who we weren't, that Christ is righteous, and that just because we do good deeds, it doesn't mean squat without Him. So when I give, I don't expect to get back, and, and I don't expect to be patted on the back and say, oh, you're such a nice philanthropic guy. You know, you give to poor people and to good causes. When, when I fast in secret, is God going to give... When I fast in secret, is God going to make me feel like I just ate a, a double cheeseburger with bacon and fries? No, that's not the point. God's not going to make you feel full when you're fasting just because you do it in secret. Fasting is a way for us to orient our minds and our hearts and, and literally physically our bodies so that we recognize that there is more to this life than what's physical. That the physical does not run our lives, but God spiritually, spiritually runs our lives. And that impacts how we relate to this world physically how our minds and hearts relate to our own body, how our minds and hearts relate to our wallet, how our minds and our hearts relate to our dependence on God through prayer. When, when I pray in secret, is God going to give me all the desires of my heart? No, but he, he does say in verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So if, if your treasure is Christ, if your treasure is God, then yeah, He will give you more of Himself. And we will have more of Him when we are out of these bodies that are frail and weak and prone to sin. And we can expect and wait for that reward to happen. Now, He, he can do those things. When you give, He can give you more. When you pray, He can grant you the desires of your heart and the requests that you make to Him. He can. When you fast, He can make you feel full. I mean, He can do these things, but that's not what Matthew is saying. It's not what Christ is saying when He is teaching His disciples these things. So it's not what we look for when we practice our righteousness in these ways. Through these things, we are reminded that Christ's righteousness is our righteousness. We remind ourselves that we are dependent upon Christ and Christ alone. That's why we sang the song that we did, Cornerstone. It's a great song. Dressed in His righteousness alone. That's what we sang. I recognize that I have, I'm not righteous by anything that I have done, but in His righteousness alone. It's Christ alone. He's the cornerstone. He's the base. He's the foundation. He's everything that I need. He's everything that I could ever want. And I can't add to that righteousness, but I can put it into practice. And I can look forward to the rewards that God has for me when I am obedient to Him. That's what Christ says Himself. That our Father who sees in secret will reward you. I, I don't 
know that that reward will be seen on the here and now, but I, I think He will give us more of Himself here and now. And so look for that to be your reward here and now, and, and look for in the future, in the life to come, for, for you to be more like Him already. There'll be less for you to have to change when you get into your new body. Maybe look at it that way. He does promise that He will reward us. He doesn't just tell us to do it like a, a taskmaster who is mean and belligerent, but as a God who is gracious and who gives good gifts to His children. So the two questions that remain for us this morning are, are for two different groups of people that are here this morning. For the one who has never repented, the one who has never repented of their sins toward God and put their faith in Jesus Christ alone for forgiveness, the question is, will you begin to trust in Christ this morning? Will you begin to do that? And for the one who has repented and is a Christian, will you continue to trust Christ alone as your righteousness by practicing these things? And particularly, as our book title says this morning, particularly by praying. And so let's be a people who put into practice our righteousness by praying. So let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for the opportunity that we have had this morning to, to look at some of the why we pray. God, if we don't know how to pray, would you help us to look at good resources like this book? Would you help us to look at the model prayer that Jesus gives to us, to look at it and to know that we are to focus on you and your majesty, your perfection? your holiness, that you are God in heaven above and that we seek to honor and glorify your name. But God, we have failed as sinful humans. We have failed to declare your holiness to our own hearts and minds and we have failed to declare it to the world around us. God, please forgive us for how we have failed so miserably, so often. And as we have received forgiveness, because we've recognized our need for you, our need for Christ's righteousness, our, our need for someone outside of ourselves to save ourselves, help us be ones who are dependent on your grace and to show that grace toward others, to forgive others the way that you have forgiven us. God, please don't lead us into temptation. Don't, don't lead us into positions where our faith and our practice might be compromised. But God, lead us into righteousness. Lead us into following after Christ and His example. And living for Him, living for you, God. So that you would be the one who is rightly honored and glorified because all of the honor and glory are due to you, are due to your name, because you alone are worthy. And so orient our hearts and our minds, please, God, that we would stop depending on ourselves and that we would continue, or even for some of us, start to depend on you. God, thank you for
your word. Pray that your spirit would use it to change our hearts as only your spirit can. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.